The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. You're listening to DNA ID, brought to you by Abject Entertainment. Be sure to check out some of the other great true crime podcasts from this network, including The Murder in My Family, Missing Persons, Scene of the Crime, Three Men and a Mystery, All Things Crime, and Zodiac Speaking. All of these podcasts are available for you to binge on right now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Subscribe where you're listening to this podcast so you don't miss an episode. Episode 21, April Tinsley. It was 1988. On Good Friday, April 1st, there was a half day of school before the students were let out for the week-long spring vacation week. At 11.30 a.m., eight-year-old April Tinsley walked home from Fairfield Elementary with her friend Lisa Gambler. She ate lunch, but by 12.30, she was on the move, heading out on foot to visit her friend Nicole, who lived six blocks away on West Suttonfield Avenue in Fort Wayne, Indiana. The two girls played at a nearby park until about 2.30, and then headed to their friend Denise's house in the 2300 block of Hoagland Avenue. It was chilly and had been raining earlier, and April had brought her umbrella with her when she left her family's apartment at 307.5 West Williams Street after lunch. But once they were at Denise's, April realized that she had left her umbrella sitting in the foyer at Nicole's house. Around 3.05 p.m., she set out on Hoagland Avenue to walk back to Nicole's, alone, to retrieve it before heading home. April had been told by her parents to be back by 3.30 because it was going to rain. But she never came home. Around 3.45, not knowing where her daughter was, April's mom, Janet, walked over to Nicole's house to see if the girls were there and had just lost track of time. Nicole was there and April's umbrella was there, but April wasn't. Almost immediately, the Tinsleys rallied neighbors to walk the streets looking and calling for April. They searched for her for hours. They didn't find her. At 7.48 p.m., Janet called the Fort Wayne police. This doesn't seem to be one of those cases where the police brush off a child's disappearance, labeling him or her a likely runaway. April's going missing was way out of character for her, and the fact that she had told her friends that she was going to retrieve her umbrella and then go home was very concerning. Police took a photo of April and a description of what she was wearing. Pink sneakers, blue pants with heart decals, a pink and red jacket, and a blue turtleneck. Fort Wayne Police and the DeKalb County Sheriff's Department began investigating immediately. They put out an APB for the missing little girl, and they mobilized a search party of more than 100 officers and civilians to look for April. The searches continued through the Easter weekend and into Monday, with scores of officers and volunteer searchers scouring the areas around April's home. Sergeant Stephen Butts, a Fort Wayne PD spokesman, said, quote, We are searching alleys, vacant houses, and talking with neighbors in an attempt to locate her. 
We started with a 10-block area, and now we're up to 20 blocks. Nothing. Since April's umbrella had been found still at Nicole's house where she'd left it, investigators quickly drew the conclusion that she had vanished from right there on Hoagland Avenue sometime around 3.05 or 3.10 p.m. Then on Monday, April 4th, a male jogger who was running along County Road 68 a mile west of Spencerville, this is in rural southern DeKalb County, around 3.30 p.m., saw something lying in a roadside ditch full of standing water from recent rains. This is about 20 miles from April's Fort Wayne home. The little girl's body lay out in the open in the ditch 15 feet from the roadway. No attempt had been made to obscure her. Police called to 5037 County Road 68 noted right away that the little body was likely April based on the clothing. They assumed that she had been killed elsewhere and dumped in the ditch no more than four hours before she was found. They arrived at this conclusion because she was visible from the roadway and they believed someone would have spotted her if she'd been there for long. This meant she would have been dumped during daylight hours, a very risky move. It seems very fortuitous that the jogger happened along that day. He or she likely had more time to observe the body in the ditch than a passing car and had a better vantage point. Without that jogger, any evidence left on April might have deteriorated to the point of uselessness. Police at the scene took a Polaroid picture of the face of the little girl on the roadside. At 5.50 p.m., they went to the home of Janet and Michael Tinsley, who were waiting near the phone. Janet said later, quote, When the police came in and told me to sit down, I just knew something was wrong, that it was bad news. April, her distraught mother pointed out, still had a little basket of uneaten Easter candy in her room. Michael and Janet confirmed that the dead little girl was their missing eight-year-old daughter. An autopsy was performed late at night on Monday, April 4th, by DeKalb County Coroner William Hathaway at DeKalb Memorial Hospital in Auburn. The case is a homicide, as it is clear that criminal activity was involved, said DeKalb County Prosecutor Paul Cherry. Yet, he also said that there were no obvious wounds to the body when it was found. That's because the pathologist had determined that the cause of death was suffocation. April had been dead for 24 to 48 hours when she was found. And, to the horror of everyone, the 49-pound 8-year-old had been sexually assaulted, although her body was found fully clothed in the same attire her parents had reported her wearing when she left the house to go to her friend's house. Investigators believed she had been carefully redressed. However, her underwear was on inside out and her pants were unbuttoned. She was wearing only one shoe. The other was found about 200 feet away on the other side of the road, and this information has never been released before that I'm aware of. April was found to be missing one of her earrings. It was never found. The case was classified as an abduction and murder from that point on. The FBI was called in to assist because of the abduction angle. There were no suspects. Shortly after the news broke that April had been found under the worst possible circumstances, a woman came forward and said that she might have seen something. This person, a neighbor, reported that she saw a little girl who was wearing clothes like those April was wearing being picked up in a beat-up blue pickup truck by an adult male on Friday afternoon between 3 and 4 p.m. The man was in his 30s, the witness guessed. She was able to describe the driver of the truck to police and work with a police sketch artist. A composite drawing of the man seen by the witness was released to the public on April 7th, with the statement that the man was wanted for questioning. 
The man depicted, based on the witness statement, was white, weighed around 150 pounds, had light blonde wavy hair with blonde tips worn on the longer side, a long face, and hooded eyes. The pickup truck was described specifically as having loud pipes. Another witness reported on the 5th of April that he or she saw a blue truck stopped early on Sunday in the middle of DeKalb County Road 68. Police Master Sergeant Steve Butts told the media that they were pursuing dozens of leads, including interviewing all known sex offenders in the area and looking at owners of blue trucks, which was their only solid lead. Crime Stoppers received more than 40 tips based on the sketch of the man in the truck seen by the witness just in the first couple of days. Everyone with a blue truck in Allen and DeKalb counties had a friend or family member turn them in, Detective Dan Camp, one of the original investigators on the case, later said. We checked them all out. This took up a lot of time and resources because there were over 1,000 blue trucks registered in those counties. Behind the scenes, police were also comparing notes with authorities in Columbus, Ohio, about the abduction of nine-year-old Nydra Ross there on March 31st, just a day before April. Nydra turned out to be a victim of notorious serial child killer David Elliott Penton. Her case was unrelated to April's. For obvious reasons, neighbors were fearful and on edge, and additional police patrols were assigned to drive through south-central Fort Wayne and be on the lookout for predators stalking children. Twelve officers put in about 200 man-hours over the weekend looking into April's disappearance. They managed to track down a man who was the subject of 134 calls reporting that he resembled the drawing. The 34-year-old man, a local gang member who lived nearby, also had access to a blue pickup truck. And the witness picked him out of a photo lineup. DeKalb County Prosecutor Paul Cherry said to the media, quote, There were several pieces of information received that led us to believe he is an important person to talk to. We're on the right track to hopefully solve this case. The suspect was taken in for eight hours of questioning, and police also questioned his family, friends, and acquaintances. They also took hair and blood samples from him to compare to the evidence in April's case. Police learned that this guy, whose name was Everett Dwayne Schull Jr., a.k.a. Moose, had been seen by others staring at two young girls and saying that he wanted to grab them and rape them. This was just days before April's abduction. It turned out that Moose was a suspect in an unrelated child molestation incident for which he was then charged after being picked up in April's case. He was accused of molesting his girlfriend's 11-year-old daughter in early November of 1987. And witnesses told police that the gang Moose was affiliated with was involved in satanic activity. Allegedly, he had been seen at a home in Fort Wayne that had pentagrams and other signs of devil worship. Tips came in that April's murder was a ritual sacrifice. It was the 80s, and this stuff was big back then. But there was no actual evidence of any of it, and there was also no evidence that Moose Shull was their man. But he sure looked good on paper. Shull remained the prime suspect for weeks, despite his adamant denials that he was in any way involved in what happened to April. While police conducted their investigation into him, he was formally arrested for fondling his 11-year-old victim. While he was being held at the Allen County Jail... Both police and local TV stations received numerous calls threatening his life. April's case had rattled some in the community to the point that they sought vengeance on her killer. The Tinsley family now had to face the prospect of laying their beloved little girl to rest. April Marie Tinsley, who had just celebrated her eighth birthday on March 18th, had been abducted and murdered on the very first day of the month she was named after. 
the little blonde girl with a wry smile who had the same first grade teacher at Fort Wayne Fairfield School that her mother had had 20 years earlier, who loved playing hide and seek, was gone, all because she had diligently turned back to retrieve her forgotten umbrella. Mike and Janet Tinsley were living on a shoestring budget and did not have money for a funeral. Neighbors chipped in to help purchase a coffin and bought some clothing in April's favorite color, blue, to bury her in. The Reverend John Elliott, pastor at the Faith United Methodist Church where April sang in the children's choir, presided over the somber service on April 8th. April was buried at Greenlawn Memorial Park. After the funeral, police collected the guest book to review the list of names of attendees. I was surprised to read in the local contemporary papers covering this case that investigators were working with DNA. It was April of 1988. DNA was first used to solve a murder case in the UK in 1986. It was still in its infancy in terms of being a forensic tool. But Stephen Sims, Allen County prosecutor in 1988, recognized the importance of this evidentiary material even in these early stages, although primarily as a means of elimination of potential suspects. DNA analysis could be a way to ensure police get the right person, not just a person, he told a reporter days after April was killed. Sims told the media that hair and blood samples from five men had been taken and were being compared against samples from April's body. The material had been flown by Indiana State Police personnel to Selmark Laboratories in Maryland that was doing DNA testing under the supervision of a British geneticist and DNA expert named Alec Jeffries. The names of the five men who had given DNA samples were not released, but one of the men who gave a sample was Everett Schull, a.k.a. Moose, who was the chief suspect in the case. But Schull was released in May of 1988 after being acquitted on that other molestation charge in a jury trial, and his DNA must not have matched that taken from April since he was never charged in her case. Police also said that he had passed two polygraph exams. A second batch of samples from April's body was sent to the lab several months later, but unfortunately, none of her attacker's DNA could be detected. What it appears happened is that the DNA testing was so rudimentary at this point in time that analysts were unable to extract meaningful information from the samples they'd collected. This is because the technology at that time required a very large sample in order to obtain a genetic profile. The sample in April's rape kit was not sufficient. The chief deputy prosecutor for Allen County, Michael Alexander, told the Muncie Star Press, quote, The investigation has been continuing all along, and police will just have to rely on more conventional methods for finding the killer. This just removes a tool they had hoped to use. The technology was not yet significant enough to use DNA as anything other than a genetic fingerprint, and investigators didn't realize the power that the evidence they had collected would one day have. Community members were, of course, shocked and horrified about the abduction and murder of April Tinsley. It did not help that police said that they believed the suspect was a local, someone who was familiar with Fort Wayne, as well as the rural outskirts where April had been found. Some concerned citizens who manned volunteer searches for the little girl formed the group APRIL, which stood for Abduction, Prevention, Reconnaissance, and Information League. They felt that not enough was being done to support the family and to catch April's killer. The group members, 90 in total, educated themselves about child abduction and started advocating for missing and murdered children. They received training in search and rescue techniques and worked to educate the public on the dangers children face from both strangers and those close to them. 
This group went on to become quite organized, well-funded, and effective, starting satellite chapters and providing high-tech equipment such as radios and other gear for local law enforcement agencies charged with operating child searches. They also provided training in schools and other settings to train children and parents in abduction resistance techniques. There was no news until June of 1990, and then the news wasn't good. Another little Fort Wayne girl went missing and was found dead. Seven-year-old Sarah Jean Bowker was found in a creek behind her apartment complex on Coldwater Road about 24 hours after her parents reported her missing when she didn't come home for dinner. Search dogs located her after first finding her stuffed toy kitten. Allen County Coroner Philip O'Shaughnessy said that an autopsy showed that little Sarah Jean had been raped and then suffocated by her head being pushed into the mud in the creek where she was found. The similarities to April's case were impossible to ignore. The coroner stated as much, acknowledging the similarities to April's murder. As spelled out in an article in The Republic, both were young white girls, only months apart in age, both were sexually assaulted, both died of suffocation, and they were found in wet ditches or shallow creeks. Also, Sarah Jean was abducted at almost the same time of day as April. She was last seen around 3.30 p.m. at her apartment complex playing with friends. But what was most chilling was that April's body was found less than two miles from the Bowker home. Galen Bowker, Sarah Jean's father, said, quote, We live just about two miles from where they found April Tinsley two years ago. It made quite an impression on all my kids. Sarah Jean's mother, Yvonne, added, quote, Sarah was very scared of strangers after that. Sarah Jean's case is particularly sad because her parents blamed themselves for what happened to her. The Bowkers both worked nights, Yvonne at a healthcare center and Galen as an electrician at GM. They were both asleep when Sarah Jean left to play with friends. Her older sister was supposed to be watching her, but of course kids will be kids and that didn't happen. Yvonne Bowker told the South Bend Tribune, quote, At times, I do a lot of second-guessing. What if I wasn't working third shift? What if I'd gotten up earlier? What if we hadn't moved to the city? You could drive yourself crazy thinking like that. She and her husband started attending support meetings for homicide survivors. Meanwhile, police investigating the Bowker case said they had possible suspects, and at least one apartment in the complex where the family lived was searched. No arrests were made, although they had found child pornography in the unit. Even police were fairly certain that the two cases, April's and Sarah Jean's, were related. Captain James Crawford, supervisor of the Fort Wayne detectives working the Bowker case, told the Star Press, quote, We don't want to get tunnel vision. We're following all tips, but we strongly suspect there is a link between the cases. But just as April's case had done, the Bowker case went cold. By March 1991, media sources said that the two cases continued to baffle investigators and not one single suspect had emerged. But there was one disturbing lead, one which was causing panic among families with young children in Fort Wayne. Ten children in the Lincoln Village area had been approached by the same suspicious man. He actually tried to abduct one 12-year-old girl. He asked her for directions and then got out of his car and talked to her, telling her he had some pretty fish at his house, and if she came to see them, it would be their little secret. Then he grabbed her and tried to pull her into his car. Thank God she was able to run away and call police. This all happened less than three miles away from the home of Sarah Jean Bowker, and it was at the same time of day, around 4 o'clock p.m. Parents were terrified, and a neighborhood newsletter documented all the incidents of this man trying to lure kids and warned parents to keep their kids close. 
And there was real reason to be afraid beyond the two murdered little girls and the man trying to grab more victims. The Journal-Gazette newspaper in Fort Wayne reported that the paper had received a phone call saying that another child would soon be killed. As a result of the fear within the community and the suspected link between the cases, a new push was initiated among law enforcement to solve the two murders fast. This took the form of a joint task force of sorts comprising 12 detectives and five other officials from state, county, and Fort Wayne law enforcement agencies. The team was assigned to find the killer, or killers, of April and Sarah Jean. By June 1991, it was reported that the FBI's investigative support unit was preparing a profile of the killer of the two girls, Sarah Jean and April. It appeared that law enforcement believed the cases to be linked. But then, this is interesting, in August of 1991, it was reported that the FBI had concluded that the two cases were likely not related. The Fort Wayne chief of police stated that this had been suspected by his detectives all along. And April's case was believed to involve more than one killer, although I'm not sure why. As a result of this conclusion, the police planned to investigate the cases separately. But sadly, they made little progress. In Puerto Rico, we call ourselves Boricua. We are proud, passionate, and full of life. On our island, adventure finds you. Strangers aren't strangers for long. The size of the audience doesn't change the beauty of the music. And we celebrate every last ray of sun. Live Boricua. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastic into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. In April of 1992, four years to the week after April's murder, there was another abduction attempt in Fort Wayne. A little girl was waiting at the bus stop, and a man drove up and tried to lure her into his car. She repeatedly refused his advances, and eventually he drove off, but the incident was enough to rekindle fears of more murdered children. April's unsolved case, now four years old, continued to languish. But in 1995, there was news on the other case, Sarah Jean Bowker's murder. It turned out that in 1992, two years after Sarah Jean was found killed, a relative of a man named Roy Hensley reported to police the relative's suspicions that Hensley might have killed Sarah Jean. Police picked up Hensley, who was in his 70s at the time, and questioned him over several interviews, but he denied having anything to do with Sarah Jean's death. However, there was circumstantial evidence that indicated Hensley could be their guy. He was a neighbor of the Bowker family, both his son David and Hensley's long-term live-in ex-girlfriend told police that Hensley knew both April and Sarah Jean. And, super creepily, Hensley carried photos of the two girls in his wallet. Further, Hensley's story changed as he spoke to investigators. They came to believe that Hensley was responsible for killing Sarah Jean, but they didn't have enough to charge him. When Hensley died of natural causes in January of 1994... Investigators looked into him further and announced in March of 95 that they believed Hensley was Sarah Jean's killer and the case was now closed. This was largely based on letters that were found among his possessions in his North Carolina home. 
the contents of which have never been revealed. But everyone wondered, what about April? Did Hensley kill her as well? Some officials felt that this was likely. Dr. Philip O'Shaughnessy, the coroner who had examined both April and Sarah Jean, told the media, quote, I think the same person killed both of them. There is too much similarity between the two cases. If they have enough evidence to say that Roy Hensley killed Sarah Bowker, then I believe Roy Hensley killed April Tinsley also. It's not clear what evidence police actually had that Hensley killed Sarah Jean, and we now know that Roy Hensley did not kill April Tinsley. If he did kill Sarah Jean, then he was either a copycat, or the similarities between the two murders are coincidence. Indiana area investigators worked April's case hard for years. Many of them put their all into the case, vowing to find the killer of the innocent little girl who was one of their own. Lead investigator Dan Camp was assigned to the Tinsley case when he moved to the Fort Wayne Police Department's homicide unit in 1990. For five years, he worked the case and hit one dead end after another. He told the Indy Star, quote, Every tip that came in, we investigated. Every tip. Hundreds of tips. So after a while, you just start thinking to yourself, oh, geez, you know, this is just another dead end. Detective Camp put a framed photo of April on his desk to remind him of the little girl whose killer remained at large. He told the Journal Gazette, quote, It was like a haunting. I couldn't leave it alone. I took April home continually. If I didn't take the file home, I took her home mentally. After five years, Camp decided he needed to step back from the case that was consuming him. The case became an obsession with me, he said. I needed to get out for my own sanity. Camp continued to keep tabs on the case even after his retirement in 2005. As for April's family, the case took a terrible toll on them as well. Initially, while they felt supported by many in the community, they also felt the blame placed on them by others. There was a lot of times where I had people say to me, you should have kept her home, you should have kept her home, you can't prison your own child, you got to let them outside and play, April's mother Janet Tinsley told the media. Per a 1995 article in the Journal Gazette, April's brother Paul, who was now nine years old, was emotionally disturbed over the fate of his sister. He would often ask his parents whether the police were ever going to catch the man who murdered her. And the Tinsleys had no answers for him. They had moved to Tennessee in 1990 to get away from the publicity, the constant questions about the case from members of the public, and the curiosity factor that made them a target of onlookers. We couldn't go outside, go to the store, anything, without TV cameras camping outside our door being followed, Janet Tinsley recalled of that difficult time. Janet and Michael ended up divorcing, their marriage suffering collateral damage from the family tragedy. Both parents told the media that they thought about what happened to April constantly and fought about it. Michael told the Journal Gazette, quote, We used to argue all the time. If you hadn't let her do this or if I hadn't done that, that's why we've been having problems. It just got to the point where we fell apart. Michael told the paper that he had attempted suicide several times, suffered from Crohn's disease, and was unable to work. He also survived heart attacks, strokes, and cancer while still in his 40s. He said, quote, I was dealing with that, wondering if I was going to die without knowing who done it. That tears you up worse. Despite his health battles, Michael Tinsley would still be alive to see his daughter's killer caught. Okay, for those of you unfamiliar with this case, hold on to your hats because it's about to get truly shocking. The depravity of the killer of April Tinsley is one of the reasons that this case is so infamous. His aberrant actions were so brazen, it's astounding that he was not caught earlier. 
In 2004, a series of incidents began happening in Fort Wayne and nearby Grable. Someone began leaving notes in Ziploc baggies for young girls in the city. Specifically, the notes were left on three bikes and in one mailbox belonging to four little blonde Fort Wayne girls. And these notes were purportedly from the killer of April Tinsley. Crystal Higgs's daughter was one of the recipients of these notes. As she was serving brunch to some friends at her Grable, Indiana home on March 25th, her seven-year-old daughter Emily came in and handed her a plastic bag she had found in the basket of her little pink two-wheeler. Crystal opened the bag and found a note written in pencil on yellow-lined paper inside. It read, Hi, honey, I've been watching you. I am the same person that kidnapped, raped, and killed Abel Tinsley. You are my next victim. The note went on to say that if the note writer did not receive news coverage the next day for leaving the note, he would, quote, blow up your house, killing everyone but you will be mine. Three other little girls received similar ominous and threatening notes. The second note, found on April 27, 2004, at 12634 Whitmer Road in Grable, said essentially the same as Emily's note, with a lurid, you're next, ha ha, added at the end. The third note, left on a bike parked outside 12902 Indiana Street in Grable, was found on June 12, 2004. This one was dated that same day and said, quote, You're next if I see you out alone. This one claimed to have a bomb planted in the little girl's house. And the fourth note was left on June 25th outside a five-year-old girl's house at 9716 Prince Court in Fort Wayne. I'm not going to repeat the text of this one. It is absolutely filthy and makes reference to the sexual perversions the note writer wanted to reenact with the little girl, quote, just like your dad does. Now, all of these notes sound like a sick prank, right? Someone seeking attention or someone sadistic who enjoyed scaring little girls and taunting police. Except police had reason to believe that the notes were truly from the killer of April Tinsley. When police decided to release the information about the notes, which was not until 2006, they revealed that there had first been communication from someone they believed to be April's killer as far back as 1990, two years after April's murder. This was in the form of a message scrawled in what appeared to be crayon on the side of a decrepit barn. In childish writing rife with misspellings, backward letters, and no punctuation, that read... I kill eight-year-old April Marie Tinsley. Did you find her other shoe? Ha ha, I will kill again. It's hard to overstate how chilling these primitive letters written on the side of the rustic barn appear. I will post the message on social media for listeners to see. Anyway, it turned out that on May 21st, 1990, law enforcement had been called to the barn's location at the intersection of Schwartz Road and State Road 37 in St. Joseph Township. This was 10 miles from where April's body was found. A teenage boy reported that someone had scrawled a message on the side of a barn. No one was certain when the message had actually appeared, but the caller was pretty sure that the police would want to see it. When responding officers saw the crude message, they knew it was almost certainly from the killer. The information about the second shoe being found far from April's body had never been released. But despite this tauntingly promising clue... Indiana investigators had no luck back in 1990 figuring out who wrote the barn message, even though the writer left the Crayola crayons he might have used for them to find nearby. No forensic evidence was extracted from these crayons. But now they and the FBI believe that the same person who left the message on the barn wrote the 2004 notes. 
because of similar misspellings and wording, lack of punctuation, and handwriting patterns. The greeting, Hi, honey, appeared in all of the recovered notes, as does some variation on the phrase, I've been watching you. In several of the notes, a double horizontal underline appears underscoring the message, and the taunting ha-ha was in one of the notes and on the side of the barn. Police Chief Rusty York said in a statement, quote, It is believed that many of the errors contained in the notes may have been made intentionally. However, even if a writer is attempting to disguise his identity, there will often be evidence of his normal, everyday writing style. Indeed, the FBI's BAU concluded that the writings showed that the killer was a white male native to the United States. They suspected the notes and barn message were deliberately childish and amateurish so as to describe the writer's true intellectual and or educational level. The terrifying thing was the delivery of the notes told investigators that the killer of April Tinsley was still alive and in the area. Right then and there, we knew this guy was still in the community, said Fort Wayne Police Chief Rusty York to the Journal-Gazette. But why would he resurface once in 1990, go dormant for 14 years, and then terrorize the community again in 2004? No one knew. Police Chief York said that authorities suspected that the killer probably exhibited an excessive amount of interest in media coverage of the case, and generally it was agreed that the killer enjoyed the publicity his crimes brought him. Maybe he just wanted to stir up some more media attention for himself. Interestingly, investigators also suspected that the killer also probably had a job that permitted him to travel large distances in a vehicle. This was because of the wide area throughout which the multiple crime scenes in April's case were located, where April was abducted, where April was found, where the notes were scattered, and where the barn was located. After the short burst of activity in spring and summer of 2004, where the flurry of notes was delivered by the killer, he went dormant again. Despite his promise to kill again, he did not. Investigators were flummoxed by these seemingly random communication patterns. Fort Wayne Police Captain Paul Schroeder commented, quote, It's definitely very odd. Even the FBI is puzzled by the behavior that the letters would come out so many years later and then nothing again. Desperate investigators decided to release all this information in 2006, including images of the messages, in hopes that someone would recognize the writing or wording and call in a tip naming the killer. Okay, so we all agree that the killer was brazen as hell to leave these notes sprinkled around Fort Wayne. But why did I say that he was depraved and his actions aberrant? Well, because there was still more information that police were not releasing about the killer's little notes. They would not reveal this information for years to come, whether because it was holdback information or because it was so repugnant, I'm not sure. But along with the last note, the one I won't read because it's so vile, the killer had left a Polaroid of a man's nude lower half showing his hand on his erect penis in a close-up shot. Other lewd photos are visible lying on the bedspread in the background. And it gets worse. In the other three cases, the notes said, I have a present for you and accompanying them were used condoms full of fresh semen for the girls to find. Yep, you heard me correctly. Condoms full of semen. Let that sink in. One of the notes accompanying a used condom said, quote, Hi, honey, I've been watching you. Here is some cum for you. With several misspellings, but cum spelled C-U-M. Another note, the June 12th one, had it spelled C-U-M-B. The note accompanying the pornographic photo did not have a condom with it, but said, here is some picture, 
P-I-T-C-H-E-R, of my dick when it's hard for you. I can't wait to get my hands on you. It went on, but as I said earlier, it's so gross that I'm not going to relay the rest of the message. Even I have limits. Now, in 2004, with the condoms, notes, and photo, investigators had a lot more to go on in their hunt for April's killer. As Crystal Higgs, whose daughter Emily was one of the girls who found a note in her bike basket, told the Indy Star, quote, It's almost like he wanted to get caught. She was right, because, as I said, the FBI believed that these missives and accompanying goodies were indeed from him. They had reason to believe that, yes, April's killer really was this depraved and, well, nasty. There was one more piece of evidence that they had not yet released to the public that supported the idea that whoever killed April was a sexual sadist who had carried out his depraved fantasies on his tiny victim. I'll get to that piece of evidence in a little bit here. But for now, investigators went into overdrive, examining the notes for fingerprints and analyzing the DNA extracted from the condoms. Because of this treasure trove of evidence, the FBI believed that the case, rife with physical evidence and all indications being that the killer was still alive in the area and actively seeking attention, was highly solvable. Former FBI profiler Jennifer Egan, who worked on the Tinsley case, told the Journal Gazette that the notes and condoms were signs that police were dealing with someone who wanted recognition for killing April. She said that he possibly stalked the little girls who found the notes in 2004, and she said, quote, he was probably creating evidence while in a car watching these little girls, referring to the condoms and their icky contents. A terrifying thought. So police delved into the evidence the killer had given them. The filthy Polaroid showed the legs of the man in the photo, telling investigators that he was white, weighed about 185 to 190 pounds, and was in his late 40s or even 50s. In Indiana, this did not narrow down the suspect pool much. Investigators asked the public to let them know if anyone they knew still had and used a Polaroid camera. These were very popular in the 70s and 80s, but by 2004 were largely obsolete. And they tried to track down the bedspread shown in the photo. Thanks to the Polaroid picture, police now knew that their killer had spent time on a bed that was covered with a maroon, paisley-patterned bedspread. It was unique-looking and pretty hideous, frankly. Again, investigators eventually asked the public if they knew anyone who had such a bedspread in their home. They went to local manufacturers and retailers to try to find out where it came from. They even went to area motels and hotels, on the theory that the spread resembled the kind you would find in this kind of lodging, but they struck out. Another avenue that was pursued was examining reports of misdemeanor offenses that occurred in the area between 1988 and the mid-2000s. These are acts like peeping toms, indecent exposure, trespassing and burglary, and fetish trophy theft that could escalate to more serious sex offenses. But of course, there were thousands of these, and none of them led anywhere concrete. As for the notes themselves, fingerprints were found on them, but they were not in APHIS, which is the criminal fingerprint database maintained by the FBI since 1999, so there was no way of knowing whose prints they were. But they also had something else, evidence that would later solve the case, DNA. In 2005, techs at the Indiana State Crime Lab were able to extract a DNA profile from the seminal fluid deposited in the condoms that accompanied three of the notes. The profile was from the same person. One person had left all the notes. And that profile was then tested against genetic material found on April's underwear. It was a match. 
It was definitive scientific proof that the man who had killed April was the same man who had left the notes for other little blonde girls years later. So now they had the killer's profile, but there were no hits in CODIS identifying him. All they really had to go on to tell them who he was were the pattern of the locations where the notes were left, the barn and April's body, handwriting analysis, the clues in the Polaroid, and the behavioral profile compiled by the BAU. For a time, detectives staked out the locations where the notes were left, hoping that the killer would approach one of the little girls and they could nab him, but it didn't happen. After the 2006 release to the public of the information about the barn message and the notes, police followed up on about 140 tips called in by people who professed to recognize the handwriting. There were a lot of promising-sounding tips. For example, one young man called in and reported that he believed his father, a Fort Worth resident, might be the killer. The man had a history of child molestation, and he owned a Polaroid camera and had a collection of photos that were disturbing. Phrases in the man's writings were similar to those used by the killer in the notes, and he drove a blue pickup that he had sold since April's murder. Police learned that this man had lived only blocks from April. They picked him up for questioning, and he was pretty shady. He told them he didn't know April, but his daughter used to play with her. He was adamant that he had been at work on the day she was killed 18 years earlier. But this wasn't true. Miraculously, police located the records from his employer and found that, in fact, he had missed work on both April 1st and April 4th, 1988. The man admitted to owning a blue pickup, but said right before April died, he sold it to a neighbor and the buyer painted it a different color. All of this was super suspicious, so police executed a search warrant at the man's home and found a yellow legal pad along with a Polaroid camera. Now, this man became the prime suspect for the murder of April Tinsley. The problem? He didn't do it. Despite this boatload of circumstantial evidence, a DNA swab proved that this man was not the killer. Detectives were shocked, but he was ruled out. Back to square one. 2008 was the 20th anniversary of April's abduction and murder. Fort Wayne's most notorious case, with its taunting killer and hundreds of suspects, was no closer to being solved than it was back when it happened. Observing the anniversary, Deputy Police Chief Carl Niblick said, quote, It's a case that touched everyone's heart at the time. We haven't forgotten. It's been 20 years, and there's still a lot that we're doing. It's just, we're hoping that someone out there can help us, that we're missing something somewhere, that someone knows about, that can give us a clue that helps us break this case. In April 2009, the Fort Wayne authorities requested a review of the case by the FBI's CARD unit. That stands for Child Abduction Response Deployment Team, which was a three-year-old group at the Federal Law Enforcement Agency comprising a variety of experts in child abduction cases. This included members from the BAU and the Crimes Against Children's Unit, representatives from VICAP, and individuals from the National Center for the Analysis of Violent Crime. Law enforcement personnel from Fort Wayne flew to Virginia to meet with CARD team members at the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children Headquarters, or NICMEC. A statement released by the FBI regarding the April Tinsley case stated, quote, As team members discovered, there is enough evidence, including notes, pictures, and DNA left by the killer years after the murder, to make investigators hopeful they can break this case. In Puerto Rico, we call ourselves Boricua. We are proud, passionate, and full of life. On our island, adventure finds you. Strangers aren't strangers for long. The size of the audience 
doesn't change the beauty of the music. And we celebrate every last ray of sun. Live Boricua. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. This is your moment. Your moment to move forward and make progress. It's time to see where an education can take you. For over 130 years, Strayer University has been at the forefront of change, offering programs that help students like you get ahead and stay ahead so you can keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEF. In 2009, as part of a media blitz on April's case promoted by Fort Wayne authorities, April's case was the headliner in the April 11th episode of John Walsh's America's Most Wanted. In conjunction with the airing of the show, the FBI released their complete profile of the suspect to the public. The show featured a hotline called Dial a Profile that the public could call in order to hear the full description, which was eight minutes long, of the man authorities were hunting. An FBI agent was on hand to answer promising phone calls from the public, calling in tips about those who they felt met the description. I'm not going to read the full profile of the killer, termed by the FBI as a preferential child sex offender here, but here are the highlights. He is a circumcised white male with hairy legs. They knew this from the pornographic photo he left for one of the little girls. He is now in his 40s or 50s. They could deduce this because the crime was 16 years old in 2004, the year that the killer made contact through the notes. He is likely not married, as the vast majority of this type of child sex offender is single. He may have developed relationships in his life that give him access to young girls, whether by dating or through his job or volunteerism. He may be known as someone who loves kids. He may frequent places where children congregate, and he will watch little girls there and may even make inappropriate comments. This offender prefers the company of children to the company of adults, and he may be socially awkward or inappropriate when interacting with adults. He may collect pictures of little girls or physical items that remind him of little girls, such as toys and dolls. He has strong ties to Northeast Fort Wayne and Allen County. This is where he likely lives, works, and or shops. You may be standing next to him in line at the grocery store, sitting beside him in the pew at church, or working beside him on the production line. He is likely in the lower socioeconomic levels. The show asked the viewing public to call in any information they might have about the writer of the notes or the owner of the Paisley bedspread. In the AMW studio, phones rang off the hook as soon as the show aired. Nearly 50 tips about the bedspread, the notes, and the possible identity of the killer were called in that first night. This grew to numbers in the hundreds. In May 2009, the FBI, working with NCMEC, the Fort Wayne Police Department, the Allen County Sheriff's Department, and the Indiana State Police, mobilized about 75 cold case investigators at a command post in Fort Wayne to revisit the case and follow up both old and new leads. They hoped that the America's Most Wanted coverage would flush out the killer or provoke him to communicate again. 
Teams of investigators canvassed neighborhoods, re-interviewed people, and collected 200-plus voluntary DNA samples from local residents in a sort of sweep. Every lead, no matter how small, was followed up. They all came to nothing. And little did investigators know, airing the America's Most Wanted episode actually resulted in the destruction of evidence. For April's killer also was an AMW fan, and after he watched the episode on the case, he drove 20 miles away from his home and deposited the telltale Paisley bedspread in a dumpster. It was never found. America's Most Wanted revisited Fort Wayne and the April Tinsley case in 2012. Several insiders to the case, such as Detective Dan Camp, who had worked the case before retiring, and former FBI profiler Jennifer Egan, participated. Chris Meals, an FWPD crime scene tech who worked the case for years, said over 700 suspects had been narrowed down to 81. Of those 81, 12 had refused to submit their DNA for testing. Several of those had refused twice. On the show, the FBI released a map illustrating exactly where each of the notes, the barn, and April's home and body dump site were located. And they also released something else. This was information that had never been released to the public before. 25 feet from April's body was found a Sears bag, and inside the bag was a crude sex toy. I've seen photos of this sex toy, which I'm not going to post. It is really horrific looking, especially when imagined in connection with torture of a child. Suffice it to say, it's a very large, very realistic looking dildo with some kind of crank handle on the base end. In photos, it appears dark brown, although reportedly the color altered after DNA and fingerprint tests were run on it. Police decided to show it after all these years because it was believed to be unique in design and could be recognized by someone who knew the killer intimately. Chris Meals told the Journal Gazette, quote, It's so unique or different. It might be someone who collected these things. Someone may recognize it. Police believed it was something deliberately left by the killer, but no DNA was found on the dildo. Speaking of DNA, this is one of the earliest cases in which I recall seeing the involvement of Parabon Nanolabs. In fact, the Fort Wayne Police Department was the first in the country to use Parabon's phenotyping technology in connection with an unsolved crime. It turns out that Parabon reached out to federal law enforcement agencies regarding the company's ability to use genetic information, known as single nucleotide polymorphisms, or SNPs, forensically as early as 2009. In October 2013, Parabon introduced NCMEC to its snapshot technology. Then, a detective from Fort Wayne attended a conference at which Parabon presented its genetic analysis tool and demonstrated what it could do to generate a snapshot. Chris Meals reached out to Parabon to discuss the Tinsley case, and as you know, the Tinsley case had ample DNA to work with. The FWPD provided Parabon with the DNA profile of April's killer the crime lab had extracted from the sample in April's underwear, and Parabon delivered its snapshot report to the Fort Wayne police in August of 2014. An article in the Daily Reporter dated July 3, 2015, says the following, quote, A Virginia company has been able to take DNA collected during the investigation into the 1988 killing of an 8-year-old Fort Wayne girl and turn the evidence into a composite image of the suspect. It's pretty incredible that Parabon's snapshot technology was already working its magic more than half a decade ago. Parabon's founder, Steve Armentrout, told Fort Wayne's NBC.com, quote, The Tinsley case is a special one to us here at Parabon. It was the first case to which we applied the snapshot technology back in mid-2014. 
Using the information from the DNA, Parabon produced a computer-generated image of April's killer, which showed that he was very fair-skinned, with dark hair and green or hazel eyes, and was of English or German descent. So, 27 years after April Tinsley's murder, and more than a decade after filthy photos, threatening notes, and revolting goodies were left by the killer, they now had an idea of what he looked like. Fort Wayne police released the image to the public in 2015, but it did not generate the leads the investigators hoped for. In 2016, Parabon had refined its snapshot technology sufficiently that a new image was warranted. In May of that year, Fort Wayne police published an updated and more detailed image, one that had been enhanced by a forensic artist to more accurately show age progression and capture what the suspect might look like in 2016. The suspect, according to Parabon, was a white man between the ages of 45 and 55 with hazel or green eyes and brown to black hair. The image helped detectives narrow down the 700 or so persons of interest and interviewees that were in the case file. Others were eliminated via DNA buckle swabs. Meanwhile, Fort Wayne police continued to publicize the case, stake out April's gravesite, interview people, and follow up on the tips that still trickled in. In 2018, a new law went into effect in Indiana that was in part inspired by public frustration with the Tinsley case remaining unsolved, despite having ample DNA from the killer. As of January 1st of that year, felony arrestees in Indiana were required to submit a DNA sample to be entered into CODIS. In April 2018, on the 30th anniversary of April's murder, Janet Tinsley told the media she was still holding out for answers three decades after her daughter's death. The terms of five U.S. presidents had come and gone while the case languished unsolved. I never thought it would go this long, Janet said. She planned to honor the anniversary with the release of April's favorite blue, pink, and purple balloons at April's Garden, which is a memorial park created in the Hoagland Masterson neighborhood of Fort Wayne in 2015 in honor of April. Fort Wayne police stated that even after all that time, they still received five to seven tips weekly. In July 2018, retired investigator Dan Camp spoke with the Fort Wayne News Sentinel and echoed Janet's sentiment, saying, quote, I never would have thought it would have gone this long. Camp and April's mother would not have to wait much longer. Parabon Nanolabs announced the commercial availability of its new technological crime-solving technique, forensic genealogy, in May of 2018. And behind the scenes, on May 11th, Parabon reached out to Fort Wayne cold case detective Brian Martin, who had picked up the April Tinsley cold case in 2016. The Virginia company's email detailed the possibility that its forensic genealogy tool could help solve April's case. Using funds provided by NCMEC, Martin contracted with Parabon to employ this new tool, the same forensic genealogy methodology that had identified the Golden State Killer just a month earlier. They sent the complete male profile extracted from the semen in the condoms to the Virginia company and waited. While Parabon worked, detectives were in the midst of preparing affidavits to support petitions for exhumation. They wanted to dig up and test for DNA the deceased parents of one of the 12 suspects remaining on the list of 81 who had always refused to give a DNA sample. He had died and been cremated in another state, so digging up his parents was the only way to check his DNA. But these affidavits were never filed because they weren't needed. On July 16, 2018, 30 years after April's abduction and murder, the public was shocked to hear of an arrest in the case. The monster who had allegedly killed April was in custody.
This is the end of April Tinsley Part 1. Don't worry, Part 2 is also available and we'll pick up right where we left off with this episode.